here's a sneak peek of what we have today. Where do you actually start? Like, what do you do? You can slowly change a lot of things in your office. You can change the location of it in an office that is owned by a, a DSO, and I am an equity shareholder in it in one way or another. I would work for a DSO. There's a lot to know about in dentistry. We should be having discussions about business, entrepreneurship, and innovation. So let's start right here, right now. This is the business of drilling. So let's talk about buying your first practice. I don't think we can really have anyone better than Dr. Roshani here. He is an incredible individual. He graduated from UFT, right, Dr. Roshani? Correct, yeah, yes. UFT. And then he went and did a bunch of associateships because he wanted to sort of get a feel for how dentistry is run in Canada. And then after that, he went on to buy practices. He also has his MBA. But you're a multi-practice owner, right, Dr. Roshani? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So why don't you give us a, an introduction about yourself, just kind of your journey, and we'll get into it. Uh, right. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, exciting to be back and having a little bit more time to talk about these uh, these topics. Um, as you mentioned, I graduated uh, from UFT in 2010. Uh, prior to that, uh, going back to my undergrad years before moving to Canada, um, I did a four year and a half, uh, four, four and a half years of a medical pro MD program in Iran before moving here. So in Iran, you go to medical school right after high school. So uh, after four and a half years, I moved here with my family, uh, went back to undergrad at UFD, did a program at uh, LMP, Lab Medicine Pathology did uh, kind of ventured into going back to medicine uh, and at the same time dentistry got into dental school at UFD and and carried on with that. Uh, when I graduated 2010, um, I did almost 10 special uh, 10 associateships in southwestern Ontario. I started off in London um, and then went up to Exeter, King Carden, uh, Woodstock, uh, came back to Toronto very briefly and in summer of 2013, after three years of associateship and 10 positions, I purchased my first office in Muskoka. Then uh, within the first 11 months, I purchased two more. And two years later, in 2016, I purchased two more practices. So let's say within three years, I purchased five offices, uh, combined two of, uh, three of them into one location in Huntsville. And then uh, we have a sister arm's length office now that is a specialty clinic, which we provide uh, oral surgery, endodontics, endodontics, periodontics. We have a GA facility and we were on uh, plan to do pedodontist, bring a pedodontist under general anesthesia, but you know, with the COVID, it, it took a little bit of a toll on our administrative and all that stuff. So right now we operate two offices in Gravenhurst and two offices in Huntsville. And uh, when COVID hit, after about a month of sitting home and doing not much, I I had the itch to do something, so I launched a PPE company. It's called PPE Supply Inc. And we started off by uh, assembling our own face shields, uh, which were a little bit more uh, suited for dentists at a time when everybody started doing this. Uh, the thickness of the foams were a little bit thinner so it wouldn't fit your loops. So uh, mm. we kind of stopped, uh, we, we changed the designs here and there and then I, I sourced thicker foam. So we launched that, we sold face shields to our colleagues across country. Then we got, we pivoted into uh, gowns. We imported thousands of gowns from China, and uh, 
our main customer was Hendershon Canada. So they, they carried our products. And then uh, when Gown's situation was resolved, uh, I set up a mass facility. Uh, we bought a machine from China, uh, renovated one of our spaces. And uh, as of yesterday, it's done. We have a, we, we manufacture a level three surgical masks for primarily dentists. Uh, we're talking to distributors. You will see, hopefully soon, uh, our products will hit the shelves. Uh, we're talking to uh, ODA so that we can, you know, provide it directly to the dentist. Dentist is uh, my main uh, my main target. Uh, yeah. I know that the medical community has always received their products really nicely, but we're always I, I call us the, the forgotten ones. Yeah, there's yeah. always expected uh, for us to pay more for uh, for whatever we pay. So uh, my goal was to bring the price of face shields and and uh, masks to pre-COVID before end of 2020. And I can tell you today, the masks that we're selling are less expensive than what we used to buy in January of 2020. Hey, that's right. awesome. So it's like a buy dentist for dentist PPE. Buy dentist, that's exactly what it is. It's our... It's, it's our uh, uh, tag on the website is by by dental professionals for dental professionals. Yeah, that's great. I mean, so that kind of that really hones in on your kind of entrepreneurial hustle, right? Right. And then you uh, also have an MBA, an executive. MBA. I do, I do. I forgot to mention that in 2017, I went back to Rodman School of Management at U of D. I'm a true U of D, U of D yeah. uh, student. Sorry about that, guys. But I did my <laughs> undergrad dentistry and. MBA at, Rod, at at UFD. Uh, it's a executive MBA, so it's a shorter version. There's no travel involved. There's no international flair to it. It's uh, 11 months of school. Um, you do it four days a month, and you have four one-week modules that you stay uh, on the campus. So yeah. I did that from 2017, I believe, and then 2018 finished and graduated you graduate with the actual MBA cohort. So like yeah. we finished the classes in October, but we didn't get our degree uh, till June of the year after. So we technically are graduates of 2019, what we finished in 2018. Interesting. So it seems like you're obviously tremendously busy nowadays, um, but going back to, I guess, your associate days and when you were a new grad, did you always kind of know that you wanted to be a practice owner? And uh, where did you like first start to... Uh, actually, no, I did not know that. I, I don't think necessarily I really thought about it when I was going through dental school. It was a different time. You're talking about almost a decade uh, before, right? So we were 2020. I was when I was in your position. It was 2008. Before even before the the, the, the collapse of the economy in 2008. So you guys are from a different generation. You have seen uh, ups and downs of economy at the time. The youth we did not see that. We were growing up on, you know, slowly interest rates were coming down. Uh, everything was great. Uh, people were wealthy. The oil was, you know, at the time, $120 a barrel. Uh, I remember summer of 2006, I went to Dubai. Oh, my goodness. It was like there's no problem in the world. Um, and then, then 2008 hit. Uh, when that hit, I was still in the third and fourth year of dental school, so we really didn't have a lot of exposure. We were almost sheltered by the shattering of economy. Um, but you guys were teenagers at the time, so you saw, you heard the struggles, you heard the stories around the world. And then 
so now in your second year, when you guys are talking about this, it's very impressive. At the time, all we cared about is when is the next zip party or AO party happening? And, <laughs> you know, what are we going to do when we graduate? What kind of car are we going to get as soon as we finish school? That's what we were worried about. Oh, there's only one thing I knew that I knew that I don't want to work in Toronto because I didn't want to work evenings. I said to myself, I like to be somewhere that there's water, uh, either like a lake or something, about two hours away from Toronto. I want to go Monday morning and then come back Thursday night and not work Friday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. That's all I knew, right? Uh, in <laughs> I terms feel like of, that's everyone's goal. <laughs> I know. And in terms of uh, you know ownership, if I want to be my own boss or not, I didn't really have a lot of thoughts about it, but I knew that from, from my background, my dad is a clinical pathologist, uh, which the, he owns like uh, medical labs. So back home mm-hmm. in Iran, it's a private entity. So you can actually own your own clinic and people refer to you. You do your, you do the tests and you send the response back to the doctors. So it's a private entity and he owned a couple of those. So he was his own boss. I never really grew up in a household that people were employed by a big corporation or there were employees and they get like a paycheck at the end of the month and all that stuff. Like my dad was his own boss and my mom um, uh, stayed home to raise us. And after that, she was an artist. So she was working from home, paintings and stuff. So uh, I never really saw, uh, you know, and sort of an employee uh, type of a uh, yeah. profession. So my family was always kind of right, right. And and again, going back to my grandparents, my grandparents were farmers, a commercial mm. farmer. So there was really no none of that in our household. But I never really was exposed to it. Uh, the only thing I realized after working six months or so as a dentist, I realized uh, I would like to change some things, but I can't. Like I right. would like to, you know, buy this equipment or I want to do this procedure or I want to, you know, talk to the patients this way and propose this to them. And and I realized there's a little bit of a lack of flexibility when it comes to that. And I accepted it because, you know, at the end of the day, I realized, you know, I'm not the one paying the, the bills, but realized that maybe if I have my own office, I can, I can address that, right? Yeah. I feel like that's the motivation for a lot of people. You know, you want right. to make your own decisions. But is that is that actually an issue? You don't really get to make decisions. I, I always assumed it was, you know, major practice decisions like, you know, acquiring new tech or whatever that associates don't typically have a, a word in. But I always thought that clinical like treatment planning was almost, um, it was up to you. I mean. Right. In terms of treatment planning, by that, I mean, like, uh, you know, we had a policy of, you know, so, so at the time, let's just give you some some context. Uh, Invisalign was a, a up and coming uh, practice modality, right? Like it wasn't mm-hmm. as much. So there was a lot of buzz from general dentists to get into that. And in one of the offices, when I mentioned the dentist, like, no, we have a great relationship with our orthodontist. We're not going to do any ortho work here, mm-hmm. right? So it's yeah, it's treatment planning by you, but. You know, as a as an associate, you can't really you know mandate you, that. You can't okay, say much to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you know, the owner says it. The owner right. says it. Right? right. Yeah. Fair enough. Okay. So, what was your actual journey then? From like you were an associate, and then to your first practice purchase. Like, take us through that period of your life. Right. So, um, at the time, I was associating in King Carden, uh, two days, three days a week, and and in Woodstock. 
the rest of the week. So I was traveling a lot. I was driving about a thousand kilometers a week, believe it or not. So I was going wow. from Toronto to to King Carden, working Monday, Tuesday, at night going to uh, Woodstock, working Wednesday, Thursday, and then driving back to King Carden, working Friday, and then coming to Toronto for the weekend. So I realized it's a little bit uh, it's a little bit taxing. You know, there's so much you can do that. Mm-hmm. So I went back to my both owners, like there were three owners involved. I was working for three different people. And I said, uh, I would, you know, do full time for you uh, if you have, first of all, the the space to give it to me or if you're interested in making me a partner. Uh, None of them were in that position to do that at the time. Okay. And I was talking to my accountant at the time and he looked at my billings and the hustle that I am doing. And he said, you know, for an associate right now, you're pretty much in the top end of what you can do with the type of procedures that you're doing. Like if you wanted to be more productive, now you're now it's time for you to make a decision that in these places that you're working, are you is there room for you to do implants? Is there room for you to do you know more complicated cases, um, more endodontic work, uh, and then more, make yourself more productive, and so that you can have a higher income. Uh, and I realized that there wasn't really that opportunity because, right. you know, the principals were doing all those procedures and there wasn't, it's not that they didn't want me to do it, but there wasn't really enough patient base to do that. Right. And it wasn't me. Like I knew that I'm not going to be a dentist who does everything at a certain, you know, a level of clinical excellence. And I can't be that. So he said, your other option is to look into buying your practice, deciding what kind of procedures you want to do. And then with the, with the revenue that comes from hygiene, you can actually afford to send those patients out to specialists if you're outside of the uh, you know, GTA and metropolitan areas that the competition is high. Right. So if you want to look outside of these areas, and I said, that's great because I actually don't want to work in the GTA and metropolitan areas. I like to be in a small town. So I think it's summer of 2013, September, uh, spring of 2013, this conversation I had with him. And within a couple of uh, weeks, I realized I'm going to start looking. So I, st- and, and what happened was I left my associateship position in King Carden because my boss in Woodstock had an office in Toronto too. And he said, I can give you two, three days work in Toronto so that you only work for, for me. So I go to Woodstock, he worked in Toronto office and we switched. So it was just the two of us and he was a great guy. Um, then I did about a month and a half or two in Toronto in the summer. Then I realized, you know, I, it's really not for me. It was like going to work at two, coming home at eight. The next week it was nine to two. Like it, it was two. Yeah. It's not my stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So then I looked into, you know, the posting, job postings here and there. And I came across Dairy Lane Dental being posted. And David Lind uh, from PPS was a rep. So I contacted him. I said, you know, when can I come and see it? He's like, whatever you want. He has a cottage in Port Carling. And he's like, I'm only about an hour away from this. If you want to come on Sunday, go ahead. And I drove up on Sunday, walked in, looked at it, I said, this is for me. I yeah. want to I want to get going. And I put an offer by the end of the week. Right. Uh, and then the rest is history. Interesting. Okay. So the process, I mean, it seems, I mean, you, you explain it in a very eloquent manner, right? But I mean, like, where, where do you start? It seems, you know, to dental students, you know, the concept of practice ownership is like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, I want to buy a practice, but 
where do you actually start? Like, what do you do? Uh, I think the first thing that you need to uh, decide is what kind of practice you want to own. Do you want, do you want to own a metropolitan area practice or you want to own a small town or even rural area practice? There's very, very much, uh, you know, these are very different. Yeah. And, you know, you cannot run a metropolitan area type of practice, a small town and vice versa. So you have to kind of understand what kind of lifestyle you want. That's basically it. Uh, you know, do you want to live in a, a, a GTA type or London or Ottawa uh, cities or you're comfortable living in a smaller town uh, like Barrie or you want to go to small town like us of 10,000 people or you want to go rural to a town of like 5,000 people, right? Yeah. That's, that's the main thing you need to decide because you can slowly change a lot of things in your office. You can't change the location of it. Yeah. I mean, like within mm-hmm. the, within the town or city or or region, right? So that's the number one thing that you need to decide. What's your personality? What kind of what kind of attitude do you have towards you know going to a grocery store and half of the people know you uh, versus you know dissolving in a a, a region of six million people, yeah. right? Uh, they're different. They're very different, um, and then. Uh, on, you probably won't know it, but you need to have some sort of idea. Because if you realize that you're a small town, a rural practice owner, or a metropolitan area practice owner, then you can find the practices that would fit in that. But you cannot uh, set yourself, psych yourself up for, I want to be in, let's say, Aurora, or I want to be in St. Catharines, and yeah. then find an office in, uh, you know, I would say Sudbury and then say, well, it's the same thing. It's not. Or say, you know, I'm going to go to Timmins now because I found a good practice there. Because, you know, it's hard. It's becoming harder and harder to flip the practices. It was a common sort of thing that people did, let's say, from 2011, 12. They bought it at a good price and sold it in 17, 18. They flipped it. They made some money. Uh, It's becoming harder to do that. Because you're really not buying anything cheap anywhere to go. Like even if you wanted to buy something, there's a buyer for every kind of practice now because there's so many buyers. So I think that you narrow it down what kind of region, where in in this country you want to be, then you can look for certain kinds of practices within that. But that's a question you need to answer for yourself while you're in school. And speaking of buyers for practices, another, I guess, barrier that you would have to consider is um, it's kind of the DSOs. And and in the last like five, 10 years, they've become quite, quite prominent. And in the dental community overall, it seems like they genuinely overall kind of have a negative rep uh, between the dentists. Um, What are your thoughts on DSOs? Like, do you think it's hard to compete with them or on the upside, do you think there's any benefit to actually having DSOs? I think the negative connotation of it is basically going back to the fact that majority of us uh, have had the entrepreneurship uh, spirit in us. We didn't want to work for anybody. That's why we went to this profession, right? Um, that's why there's a negative connotation. However, it's a cultural thing. I think the next generation of dentists come in, they are the millennials. They, they watched the collapse of economy. They do have a better acceptance of corporations having a soul, 
right? Yeah. We are from a, the existing generation of dentists are from a generation of corporations are bad. These are bad people doing bad things to the economy, to the environment, to their people, and they're evil. But you guys are, you know, you grew up on Instagram, Facebook, Google, you saw Uber, you saw, you know, major corporations doing a lot of good things and the push for cleaning the environments, uh, younger generation of CEOs. So you don't have the certain, you don't have the, you don't share the same negative feelings towards big corporations and DSOs owning something that you will be part of, right? So I think that negative connotation and that spirit will fade as the next generation of dentists coming in. I'm not worried about that. And I yeah. think if anything, the share of DSOs holding offices in North America will out outdo the 10 percent estimation that is currently uh you know talked about i think the market will have 30 to 50 percent appetite for dsl's owning owning offices that and generally speaking overall we've we've saw that the the, the patient base that is going to these uh to these offices has not uh, suffered any clinical issues. There's not, not really lack of acceptance from patients because that's at the end of the day what determines if DSOs survive or not. It's not necessarily the dentists and the staff yeah. and everything else. It's the patients. It's the it's the public. It's the general acceptance of public for um, for um, corporate dentistry or not, like everything else, for corporate medicine, for corporate pharmacy, for corporate you know, grocery chains. Uh, public uh, has a very limited exposure to dental office. It's on average five hours a year, right? right. Yeah. So, you know, they come and they come six months from now and something has changed and, you know, Lucy's not at the front desk anymore and is Natalie today and the Dr. So-and-so's associate is there and, you know, it's Dr. John and tomorrow's Dr., you know, uh, Maggie, so that five yeah. hours a year interaction is not very critical, especially in the metropolitan areas where there is a lot of movement. Yeah, yeah, um, for sure. So, you know, I don't think that the next generation of uh, dentists will have the same sort of, you know, feelings towards DSOs. There will be a lot yeah. more acceptance. And then on that note, too, I think... Um, you know, the DSO model is also changing a lot too. It's starting, it started from, you know, complete ownership and complete management of everything, right? And now you're seeing a lot of sort of practice models where the DSOs just own 50% or whatever, 51%. And they let uh, an associate or they call them a partner dentist, right? They let them partner in with the actual DSO and they own equity stake in that specific location, right? And, you know, to someone that has no business experience, Right. You have to understand, like in dental school, we don't get any business acumen. Right. Like, you, you know that. So that seems really appealing. Having an entity be like, hey, we'll deal with all the administrative stuff. If you're a good dentist, we will partner with you and you can have your own clinic. And then I've listened to a couple of podcast interviews. I've read a couple of forums about dentists that are in that kind of practice model. And they say it's great. Like they say they have clinical autonomy still. It's basically they're they're just a dentist. They come in and they do the dentistry and they make the clinical decisions. And the DSO does all the administrative insurance and management and HR stuff. Right, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, the the amount of help that they offer to a particular dentist is basically based on how much you uh, need. If I went back in time and I thought, okay, if I'm an associate, would I like to work for an individual owner? 
or would I like to work in an office that is owned by a, a DSO and I am an equity shareholder in it in one way or another, I would work for a DSO. You will um, receive the support, especially starting out. Yeah. Uh, I would think within the next five years, there will be many of these offices that the partners are retiring and they have fulfilled their obligations to DSO, especially with the COVID and aftermath of COVID, which is not going to be done for another two to three years. So I, I expect an exodus of our uh, colleagues at some point as soon as they fulfill their obligations because it's a hard profession now. It's always been hard and challenging, but it's even more now. So if I was an associate coming in, the first thing I would do is I would pick a DSO to join and I would say, hey guys, where, where do you have any of these partners that are retiring and you need sort of a partner principal to go in and you're buying into that equity of 10, 20, 30% or whatever. Yeah. And you don't need to worry about any of the administrative stuff. They will take care of all the noise for you if that's something that you don't want to venture in. And this is a great model in my opinion. And I think it needs to be celebrated because your other yeah. option would have been to do the traditional things where margins are becoming thinner and thinner, the competition is heating up, and the noise of materials, uh, you know, employment lawyer issues, uh, marketing issues, and all that stuff is happening. For a young person getting into that at this point in time and taking on a heavy debt load uh, is really hard. It is uh, hard. Right. And, and the financing options have changed. You're looking at amortization as 12 to 15 years. It's almost basically practically a mortgage. Yeah. And I tell you, your generation, for the right reasons, is very risk averse, very debt averse, which is not a bad thing, uh, in my opinion. So you could start up like that. You will have a five-year obligation to them. You own a certain you know, percentage of that office. And if you don't want it at that five-year, then you go and buy an office. Exactly. And you right? come out with like tremendous experience too, right? Because you get yes. the clinical reps in and whatnot, right. right? It's always, that's been the question on my mind for a lot. Like, so you shift from, you know, being an associate to working in a DSO to uh, being a practice owner. And then now it's like this weird blended model of being a practice owner slash working for a DSL. Right. And I don't know, it's hard to say, it's hard to say where we'll go, but you know, yeah, least- and, uh, sorry to interrupt you, but you're just to add to that is that DSO model is a living in breathing document as well. It, that has changed because DSOs mm-hmm. themselves have not you know, they, they've celebrated a decade, but reality is that this document uh, and this model has changed over the past five years significantly because there's more in it. And they have adapted. They've adapted to, you know, sometimes complete autonomy about buying whatever you want to now saying, you know, there's a, I don't know if how official it is, but there's talks with basically saying Dental Corp is exclusively buying their stuff from Henry Schein now. So, that, in my opinion, is a great thing because there's a lot of things that uh, we as a dentist entity, we buy things that we really don't need and we shouldn't mm-hmm. be paying this much for it. So maybe someone should make that decision for us and say, no, there is no reason for you to buy Etch at $60 a tube while you can buy it at $20 a tube, for example. Exactly. There's, there's absolutely no clinical difference. That's what I was going to get at. I mean, like people talk a lot about the negatives of DSOs, but there is one huge positive for DSOs that you really can't compete with as a sole owner. And that is bulk buying. 
Yes. But that is Absolutely. like the name of the game for economics Absolutely. for dental offices, right? Like even shaving 10 cents off of a dollar product, right? Like that's huge in the long that's term. That's huge. That's right? huge. That's huge. And the you just fact don't that, have the time for it. You don't have the time. Exactly. To yeah. And the fact that you don't even have to worry about that, like you just come in and your practice is stocked, is that's just so much more appealing, right? But then, so there, there should be benefits on the other side, right? Like what are the benefits of then full practice ownership? What are, what are the benefits of you running the show, right? Right. There's always a, a, a sort of a – there's always weight – with owning an entity, there's always that. Like if you're home ownership, suddenly, you know, uh, there's that cultural or, or that weight in the society that you can use that as some sort of a collateral eventually. So your, your, your lending option improves. Uh, you can lease things at that point. You, you have a little bit more freedom of uh, adapting new technology, for example, right? Um, it all comes down to let's say you you join this practice so you want to buy a microscope you think you will improve your clinical outcomes with a microscope you will not necessarily improve your bottom line with a microscope because you're still going to do like for you to see the benefit of doing root canals with a microscope will probably show five years later when you have less retreats yeah. you have less endo failures right so as a uh, associate or as a DSO partner, what's your freedom of being able to afford that? And who owns that piece of equipment? As right. a practice owner, it's a phone call, you call the rep, you bring it in, you lease it, and you're done. That's yours. You can work with it, you can play with it. So these are the things that you do not have working for anybody else, including DSO or as an associate somewhere. But as, a, as, an, as an owner, you do. Uh, it took me, four weeks to decide it's time for us to have our own lab and we have it now yeah. right so yeah it took me three weeks to decide it's time to buy a ga machine and we have a ga machine we have ga suite now it took me you know a day to realize we don't need necessarily a surgical clean air uh fan but we can buy zip up plastics and close the ops you, these yeah. are the little decisions that you can make a lot more nimble when you own your own office, you switch from one product to another product. Uh, for example, I switched our uh, sterilization bags from one company to the another one, which, you know, as a DSO, you might not really have the freedom now. For example, if you buy, have to buy everything from Henry Shine, you might not be able to buy that product from that other company. Maybe they might not even offer it any discounted price to anybody, right? Yeah. So these decisions are yours. And you live with the consequences. If it helps your bottom line, great. You put the money in your pocket. If it doesn't, you have any other justification for it, you use it. But being part of a DSO, um, as much as they want to give you the freedom, sometimes it's hard. You cannot have more than a certain percent of capital capital expenditure a year for new equipment. You just They don't give it to you because they need to see how it's justifiable under business model. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, let's segue back to practice ownership. Um, so uh, talking about, so we went into DSOs, right? And we left off from practice ownership with, you, you know, like you finding a practice, you you buying that practice, right? How do you deal with the saturation aspect of it all, right? And not saturation in the traditional sense of you're, you're competing with a dentist next door. If you're looking for a good area to buy a practice in, 
you know, there's a really good chance that there's someone else that's looking at the same area. <coughs> right. So how do you deal with that? Like, and even so, like if you find a rural town, for example, right, Ontario situations for dentists, like you can, I, I would pretty much expect that if I find something good, someone else is going to join me there very quickly. Right. How do you deal with that? Uh, well, right off the bat, acknowledgement and acceptance. <laughs> You're absolutely <laughs> right. You need to you need to accept that the fact that finding those hot deals is becoming harder. So you have you have to work with what you got. Uh, to address that, in my opinion, the way to go through and around this issue is to try to find the connections that are in that environment already. I've said this many times. I've been talking about practice ownership for five years now with with dental students or young dentists. Uh, I would say the most influential people that can tip you to an opportunity are dental reps and dental technicians that are working and repairing these equipments. They are, unfortunately, they don't have a platform. You know, you can't really find them but easily, but you can. You, it, let's say if you call Henry Sean Canada's head office in, in uh, Vaughan and ask the receptionist who picks up the phone, say, I need to know who is the Henry Sean rep for, let's say, you know, North London. Within 15, 20 minutes, you will find that person. Yeah. Right, it's not hard. You can do that. But let's say this is not the path you want to take. Uh, sending it, there's there's many things that we've talked about before, and I'm sure you guys know. Like from cold calls to the office, searching the databases to see you know what year these dentists graduated, checking out their websites, figuring out if they have an associate or not. Uh, talking to the reps, talking to the brokers. Uh, these are all good ways. There's no one-way magical solution. And a lot of it has to be to, to do with luck. But I always say for luck to, to knock on your door, you have to be there. You have to have all your fishing rods out in the lake and wait for one of them to, to, to bite. You can't just say, well, you know, I'm just going to put one in there and I'm going to use this kind of tag on it and then hopefully that will do it. No, you have to have all sorts of venues. You have to at least know three or four brokers with the track record of being able to bring in good deals. Uh, you have to know one or two at least of the dental reps in the area that you're interested in on a first name basis. You have to know the labs in that community. You have to know, you know who does cases from where. You have to know the dentist by name yourself and you have to know if they have an associate or not. You have to do, you have to do the homework. There's no one way for me to say, hey, guys, this is a formula you're going to find a practice. You have yeah. to put a lot of time into this so that if an opportunity comes, you have a better chance than anybody else to, to close that and, and make that connection. It's one of those things, and I always say that uh, you always, uh, one bad move will set you back a lot further than having 50 good moves. You have to be really mindful of doing your homework and doing it right. Um, in the sense that 
if you're introducing yourself as a cold call, really know who you're talking to, what the history is. Don't don't make a mistake of, you know, mixing this person up with the other person and trying to ruin that first initial contact you've had. But a lot of uh, a lot of dentists, uh, our colleagues, are very receptive to the idea of helping a young next generation dentist up in, in any way. Let's say if you know an office is a DSO ownership and the dentist has stayed on for five years, would they be willing to talk to you about it? Absolutely. I do not know unless there's a, you know there's an issue with time or you know per- personal commitments i don't know any of my colleagues that have never said i'm not going to talk to a new dentist i don't want i don't want to give them any feedback or anything yeah right and that's what, that's what we've experienced too everyone seems pretty open to conversation yeah i remember last time from the seminar that you kind of gave for us um and you and you highlighted kind of the same point i personally did reach out to like a few a few um, dental sales reps and, and some labs and they seem very very helpful in terms of like as students like giving you resources to kind of supplement your education. One thing I did want to ask you about, and you mentioned it earlier, it was about uh, dental brokers. Um, have you uh, ever like personally used a dental broker before? And one thing I kind of found was, would they not have an incentive to work for their client who would be, I guess, the seller at that point? So what have your, uh, your experience been with dental brokers? Right. So I, I bought the first three were brokered. Uh, the fourth one was broker too. The fifth one was, you know, a personal connection. Uh, they have an incentive to sell. Back, let's say, ten years ago, ten, eight to ten years ago, uh, it was hard to bring buyers to the table. So they were, you know, the traditional model was for the broker to actually find the right suitor. Now uh, the brokers are like uh, gatekeepers. Uh, they just have to, you know, basically put it on a platform, and then the buyers will just line up, and they just have to sort of screen them and sway this one way or another. There's really no pressure on them necessarily to sell these days. You know, it, this thing sells for itself. It's it's like almost uh, having a you know COVID vaccine today, and say, hey, does anybody want it? You just line up. Uh, yeah. So there's really no necessarily advantage in for them to to try to cater to you because there's no shortage of buyer. But if you happen to have an advantage offering to them, like, you know, uh, it mostly comes to price, unfortunately, yeah. which doesn't really suit a lot of first-time buyers. Um they're not there to represent you. There's no representation for you uh, necessarily, unless you're willing to pay some consultants to look at that and try to, you know, tell you if it's a good practice or not. I always benefited from having my team at DCY Accounting, and you know, full disclosure, they're my. They're, I I never bought a practice without. David himself saying, yeah, this is a good practice. And David said, uh, this is a junk many, many times. Oh, yeah. like, not in the sense that it's not junk. He's like, this is expensive. You're not going to make money off of this. Yeah. So, and you know, that advice comes with being willing to pay, uh, you know, the, the fees for accounting firm. And they're not necessarily the least expensive ones in the market, but it comes with the advice and they, they help you close the deal and they do the projections. And when you take DCY's stamp or approval to a bank, they look at it like, yeah, they've done their homework. So that's one representation. 
and I think it's the accounting firm. Uh, aside from that, I don't really know there's anybody that would hold your hand closing the deal, except for, let's say, friends or you know some advice from here and there, but you don't really have any representation, so you're absolutely right. Um, there's really no incentive for a broker to try to cater to you. Yeah. Right? It shifted so much too, right? And like the saturation went from dental saturation. Now it's like dental buyer saturation, right? So it's like in competition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. So in terms of then buying, right? Like just to give you a background on where I'm coming from, you know, I, I try to look at like population demographics, census reports and stuff like that, right? Especially, you know, really important when the population demographics pertaining to a specific location of where you want to buy a practice and whatnot, right? So my question, and I just kind of want to see how you would handle a situation like this, like a lot of these communities that report high dentist to, uh, sorry, population to dentist ratios, right? That's sort of like the first key factor you look for. But then when you kind of look into the census reports of those locations, you see that, you know, the population is shrinking, the population is aging more rapidly, there's a lack of jobs, right? How do you deal with that? Because it's almost like you find something good, but then there's a lot of downsides. So it's like, is it a long-term investment? Probably not if it's a dying city, right? So can you expand on that? You're absolutely right. This is unfortunately... Uh, a trend that rural Ontario, rural Canada is dying. Uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the traditional jobs in these communities have gone. Uh, the forestry, the mining. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Like you can look at a town that has three, 4,000 people still living in it with a dentist, but a lot of them are older and they're living on the pension of that, of that company from 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. Is that a foreseeable disaster? It is. It is. So there's really no way to avoid it except for acknowledge it and say, well, I'm just going to pass on this. However, there's always going to be a basic amount of income per person, per population that you can count on. We are in a, uh, in, a in a profession that people will have to come and see you as long as they still have one tooth. And even yeah. they have no teeth, they still have to come and see you. So they might not come every year, but even the patients will complete upper and lower denture. Even if you have not made those dentures, there's a tissue check that yeah. they will come and do once every three, four years. So if you're in a popul- if you're in an area that there's ten thousand people living, and there's two dentists. And yes, the town is dying, the, the industries are gone, people are living there based on their pensions, the, the, the youth is migrating out of that. What is the future? You can look into it and say, well, I might not have 5,000 uh, you know, preventative patients come in every time, but I'll probably have 1,500 patients that need extractions, pain, uh, root canals, um, dentures, and all that stuff. So you still have, as long as people are there, and their teeth, you still have a clientele that is going to come to see you. Now, what is your expectations? If I see a practice in a town of 10,000 people with three dentists that is selling for $1.5 million, that is a good deal. If oh, really? Selling, yeah. If it's selling for 750000 that's a steal. Yeah. If you're selling for $5 million, then you're like, what is this? Okay. Right? okay. Yeah. Everything has a price. Everything has a price, you know. Uh, and at the end of the day, it all comes down to cash flow. 
how much are you paying for this? What is it going to come out of it? And are you man enough or woman enough to sit through it? That's mm-hmm. the thing. So there's really no, never a bad deal when the price is right. Yeah, fair enough. When I the mean, price is right. If I could ask a quick follow-up, like I know um, rural is obviously inherently at least viewed upon as less risky, but if you go to a smaller town, say 10, 15,000 people, and you know, a majority of them work at say one factory or something, and then uh, say, you know, in one or two years, that factory shuts down or something that I think personally, I would say that has a huge economic impact on that city versus say, if you're in a slightly bigger town of say, like 50 or hundred thousand people, there's still other like economic, um, what's the word, uh, economic drivers of that community versus that small town. So wouldn't in some ways that actually be a bit more risky? Because I, I remember reading about this um, town in Michigan where there was like a uh, like a nuclear power plant or something and that shut down. And, and then that small town that was growing quite a bit went from like, you know, a nice plum town to just completely dead. So in some ways, wouldn't going grow actually a bit more risky? So it all comes down to the expectations of how quickly that, tie will, that town will die. Like, for example, forestry in northern Ontario has been dead for 30 years. But those towns still there, yeah. right? Uh, the so, and when those factories shut down, they have to lay people off, and they all have pensions. You can't just, you know, it. Especially in Canada, the labor laws are very, very stringent in making sure that you don't have this dying down the next day. So even if you see those towns in the northern Ontario or northern whatever in Canada that are not flourishing anymore, they're still self-sufficient. People still live there. It's nothing the next day as soon as this factory goes. That's a 10, 15, 20-year 20 uh, plan for it to die. And a lot of times other industries come in. For example, Kirkland Lake um, went from a, a – a mining town to a retirement community in the span of 20 years. It's still flourishing today. And the mine is a museum now. Hmm. So these are on paper. Yeah, this town went from zero, 100 to zero within three, four years. But that's not the common theme because yeah. you have to consider there are other people living in there. Where are they going to go? That's they what I was going to say too. Right. Like it, it is a huge, huge yes. detriment to the economy for you know right. something like that to happen. Like people don't want that to happen. No, they right? don't. And the, the government subsidizes subsidizes many things. There are so many of these call centers that you don't know that mm-hmm. are in Northern Ontario and on a government dime to keep these communities alive. I mean, Do you yeah. know where the headquarter of OLG is in Canada? Do you know no. where it is? Nope. No. It is Sault Ste. Marie. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. OLG is one of the main employers in Sault Ste. Marie. Wow. Right. So Sudbury, one of the biggest call centers for federal government is in Sudbury. Have you noticed if you file your taxes where the address is? Is it in Close Sudbury? To Sudbury, yeah. <laughs> Sydney, Nova Scotia is a headquarter for Immigration Canada. So what oh, I'm saying yeah. is that, yeah. So government, the federal government has incentive to keep these individuals living in those communities so they don't all flock down to the, to the GTA because you don't have the infrastructure for them to come down. So yeah. you're not going to see a small town in Ontario or anywhere in Canada dying within two years. It won't. It yeah. won't. Find one and tell me because yeah. it doesn't exist. 
Right? That's comforting to know. Yeah, that's comforting to know. Because I, I think we're so caught up in dentistry. We're like, oh no, like yeah. how is our dental business going to thrive? Right. And we're worried about like, you know, youth going away, population shrinkage. But yeah, I think that's totally a point to consider too. Towns don't want to die. <laughs> no, right? towns don't want to die. And a lot of people had a lot have a lot more incentive that's giving it going than a young dentist coming and buying an office. There mm-hmm. are people with three or four generation of houses, like, you know, the families being in that city. So, you know, our, our little issue is nothing compared to them losing their entire town. And Canada has a lot of government support for these things not to happen. I tell you, you live in Canada. You don't live in the United States. It's all about business. Yeah, yeah. You don't bankrupt towns and cities in, in Canada. You don't. Uh, for example, Halliburton. There's nothing in Halliburton. Nothing. There's nothing. Just check it. There's no industry, the nothing around the Highlands. <laughs> it's just cottages. And unfortunately, the unemployment is very high. Unfortunately, poverty is rampant in that community. But that community has survived for 30 years. There's two dental offices there, and there 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 always been two dental offices there for five six thousand people. Yeah. So um, on paper, it doesn't pan out. The next thing is, for example, where you are in London, thirty minutes north of you, Exeter. Yeah. Farming community, farming community. If you go on the census, you think this community is poor, but the, traditionally, this is a community that. Ba- he works on cash basis. The office that I worked with there, we did not have a debit machine. It was oh, cash wow. or check. There was no computer for appointments. <laughs> it one of the most profitable practices that I ever worked as an associate. Wow. People roll in with $150,000 souped up trucks. But wow. if you go on census, the money doesn't show up. It's, yeah, it's yeah. farming. You buy it. Point. You, you did the that the exchange of cash is not is not uh, captured in any transaction that the government can point it to you and say, hey, this is an affluent community, go there work. But yeah, it is enough. an affluent community, right? Fair enough, yeah. So there, there's definitely so many more aspects to it yes. than just the paper. Like That's the, the point. Yeah, fair right. enough, fair enough. Right. Okay, um, let, can we talk about practice loans? Mm-hmm. Right, so... I've dug around online and I've seen estimates cap at like 500K, right? And keep in mind, like I have zero experience with this too. That's why, you know, talking to you would be so beneficial about it. So do new buyers, do you have to get into these kind of like 500K practices or like, how do you deal with practice prices that are close to a million? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not even talking about the ones that are like, you know, the unicorns that are like two, three million practice like that. That shouldn't be on your radar, but even just a startup practice, like something that's costing you 700K is a pretty substantial practice loan, right? Right. Uh, what do you mean by uh, estimates that you've seen online? So I just Google like Canadian pra- dental practice loans, right? And right. they give you like a little uh, tab that is a basic calculator or whatever, and you can estimate and it gives you a range from like 100 to 500K. I haven't seen right. anything other than that, but I've seen practice prices that are you know, you know, they're, oh, they're, they're sure. huge. Oh, they're sure. like 700 plus right. million plus, right? So how do you deal with that? Like how do the practice loans work for new grads, dental students? So I think what you've looked at is uh, practice loans for startups, which usually is about 500 to 700. You don't 
need to start up a practice that costs more than $500,000. Like when you're looking at it, you got a fixed uh, cost of, you know, there's there's numbers out there, you know, with the, exactly like finishes of the house. Like you can have, uh, you know, $50,000 per op finish and you have $20,000 per op finish and you have $100,000 per op finish. But on average, if you want to do a four operatory practice, uh, the, co- the construction costs should not be more than $500,000. Still, it was $500,000 before, but you have a lot more options of types of finishes now. You, you, cannot, you can have a reasonably looking, well-equipped practice for operators for $500,000. You can. You can. Right. So those are that kind of loans. But healthcare lending is very different. Healthcare lending is not on any websites. There's no tab on, let's say, a Royal Bank um, to click on it and say healthcare lending, it gives you any, it, it tells you that it exists, but you have to talk to healthcare, dental, and medical bankers. Okay. So when you are looking for practices and you know, you go to open houses or you go to seminars, which you don't anymore, obviously, with COVID, COVID. but there <laughs> used to be bankers present. These are the bankers that are specialized in financing deals for closing dental offices. Traditionally, before this COVID, um, when I was buying practices, you could get at 100% finance at a 10-year rate with Prime. Then the competition heat up. Uh, then you would get a, a 10-year Prime minus quarter for 10 years, 12 years sometimes, up to 100%. And then the price was up, up to 120%, 150% of production. Wow. And then a little bit of top up from you, cross guarantees. So if you buy, if you find a right practice that it all comes down to cash flow projections, if it's justifiable, you can get a loan for 15 years, prime minus quarter at 120% of purchase price today. Yeah. But you got to find a banker for it. Yeah. Right, and Royal Bank is very active. TD is very active. Scotia is very active. National Bank comes came to market about three, four years ago. They are the ones that introduced twelve-year financing. Um, CIBC does to some extent has a healthcare department. BMO is getting into this uh, field because, in terms of small retail entities, dental offices are still very risk um, averse. Uh, they're still you know, there's some money that can be put into dental offices. They're not recession proof, but they're recession resistance. So you will you will notice that uh, bankers, you know, it's all about risk and cash flow. Yeah. So for them, they can justify financing a dental office versus financing a, you know, startup restaurant. Believe it yeah, or not. yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah. So and you will I've find a banker. Yeah, I've heard that so many times too. I mean, like the the rate on default for dental loans is so low, right? Um, but it's it's good to hear that even today's like today's world, like if you were to go out to a loan now, it's not unrealistic, right? You just you have to no, go and do it. No, you know the banks are working by giving money out and collecting the interest. Yeah, exactly. There's no point for a bank to sit on billions of dollars and not giving out. There's no point for them. There's nothing else for them to do. They're not going to get into manufacturing. They're not going to get into trades. They're not going to get into, uh, you know, playing with stocks or nothing like that. Like they have to give the money out to someone to make money and give them the interest. That's always been the case for the past 150 years. Right. Yeah. Interesting. 
I know we've talked a lot about obviously practice ownership has so many things apart from just like clinical things you have to consider, whether it's like location, whether it's dealing with banks, whether it's dealing with people correctly. What are some like non-clinical skills you think that all dentists and all dental students should be aware of? One thing I found personally, and especially become more intensified during COVID is uh, dealing with insurance companies. Uh, I feel like students and new grads know almost like nothing. And we, we don't really get taught on it, obviously. Um, but with COVID, just from personal experience, and just in like, I think the healthcare prof- profession in general, not just dentistry, I think they become much, much more tighter with their regulations. Um, because a lot of healthcare clinics were kind of, you know, fabricating these uh, claims to just make sure that they're afloat during COVID. Um, personally, I uh, I thought that learning how to deal with insurance companies and learning how to connect with your community, if you really want to be a practice owner, I think those two things were skills that I think uh, that we should really build on. What are your thoughts on this? You're absolutely right. And going back to insurance company, there, there, there are a number of different dealings with insurance companies. I wanted to ask what what kind of dealings are you talking about? And let me expand on this. You have the interaction with the insurance company as a payer of the services. Like people have insurance, they come, you do a service and the collection needs to happen. You have dealings with insurance as a business entity, which is your, you know, fire insurance, equipment insurance, liability, blah, blah, blah. You have dealings with insurance as an individual uh, uh, healthcare provider, like your disability insurance, your life insurance, your critical insurance, critical illness insurance. And then you have entities like your car insurance and home insurance. Like what kind yeah. are you specifically yeah, dealing specific. with? I was talking specifically about the collections. So when a patient comes in, they're covered by, you know, they're covered for XYZ, you do that. And then even though they're covered, it's quite difficult to actually get that money or it's a really like long-winded process. All right. So was- bottom line is that the insurance holder, the policy holder, which is your patient, needs to deal with insurance. It's not your responsibility. You don't deal with insurance. The offices who do that, they do that as a courtesy. You do it as a courtesy, put the patient on assignment, which means that because you don't have $1,000 to pay me for this today, I will collect the insurance payment myself as an assignment. So I'll collect the $800 of it and you pay me the difference. You have no obligation to deal with the insurance on behalf of your patient. You don't. It's a courtesy. And it's a marketing technique. The only obligation you have is you don't even have the obligation of submitting that insurance claim electronically. You can give the paper claim to the patient like the vet does. And you say, go deal with your insurance. These are the claims. These are the forms. These are the codes. This is what I charge you. Go figure out what you're entitled to collect. That's it. You have no obligation. Okay. You don't need to do. I have never talked to insurance company personally about anything, and I don't. <laughs> we three, three of our offices are non-assignment. We don't care what your insurance covers or not. We can tell you what it covers. We can submit it to you, to them electronically so you recover your fees faster, but you pay us for the services we did today. Yeah. Anything else is not your obligation. You have okay. no obligation. Interesting, because every clinic I've been to, and, and even my own personal dentist, that was always kind of the standard that, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll, uh, yeah. that it's we'll a marketing take the insurance thing. for you. If you don't do it while 20 other dentists office around you do it, people have these expectations. But if in a town of small town, if all dental offices are on assi- a non-assignment, the patients don't have no choice. They can't use this as a marketing thing and say, well, this office does it. Now they don't. 
you deal with it yourself. You're not yeah. assignment. And the ones that we tell them we do for them, we do them as a courtesy. We put them on assignment. If it's more than $1,000, a family of four come in, two kids need fillings, they do all their cleanings and all, blah, blah, blah. It's about $5,000. Who has $5,000 to pay today? So you say, yeah. you know what? As a courtesy, you pay me 600 bucks. I'll wait for your insurance to pay me directly. And that's yeah. called assignment. Assignment of benefits. Other than that, you have no obligation. We Sometimes we just... You know, we give the code and say, call and ask if you have coverage for this. It's not my obligation to know. It's your obligation to know as a plan holder. They don't even tell you these days. Like they used to send the predeterminations for crowns to the dentist's office. They don't anymore for patient privacy. So we wouldn't even know if they have crown coverage or not. Oh, wow. It's not the dentist's obligation. They send it to the patient and say, this is your benefit. You get 60%. And we say, if you don't understand what it says, you can call us and we can tell you what it is, but it's not our obligation to know. Yeah. And you have to collect the co-payment. It's an insurance fraud if you waive that knowingly. You have to collect that 20%. Some offices in the metropolitan areas don't because the patient yeah. expect, because they don't really have a choice because they go to another dentist and that dentist says, you know what, that 10%, 20%, I don't pick it up. Yeah. But that's insurance fraud. That, yeah, that's funny. I, I've, I've heard that a couple of times, actually. Like I've heard anecdotes yeah. of that happening quite a few times. That is yeah. wrong. Insurance can actually complain, file a complaint against you with the RCDSO and you will lose your license yeah, on the wow. spot. That's that's fraud. You will have a criminal record. <laughs> and yeah, and that's why I had brought it up earlier with like the healthcare professionals that the little small businesses that are trying to stay afloat, like they were doing this, at least from what I heard, they were doing this quite a bit during COVID because obviously they have mo uh, no money coming in. And that's why the regulations by these insurance companies got very, very tight. Um, Absolutely. So what happens is, for example, you know this, you know this patient has eighty percent coverage. You've always waived the, the copay. The, the patient doesn't really care. Or they don't even know uh, that what you're filing for them because they come in, they get things done, and they go home, right? Yeah. But uh, they come in for a visit, and you know you do an MO, and then you put in an exam, you put in a, a PA. Uh, you know, something like that, a fluoride varnish, and then the patient never knows. But now insurance companies actually send a copy of the claim to the patient. So sometimes patient looks at it and says, oh, that's wrong. He never did that for me. They call the insurance company and say, don't pay this. <laughs> and then the insurance says, well, did you pay that 20%? No, I never paid nothing. Boom. You're yeah, done. You're caught, right? Mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, it, it's... That is my least favorite part about dentistry. That is playing with fire. <laughs> yeah. That is playing with fire. I, I don't, don't even do like the fact that that is a topic of discussion. Like that seems so wrong and broken. That is wrong in so many, so many uh, layers because this is the same insurance company that is going to pay you out when you, when you have a claim. Like if you, if you're, you know, frauding them now, how do you expect them to be, you know, honest yeah. with you down the road it's you know for example manulife has all sorts of insurance policies you yeah. i have life insurance with manulife and then manulife is paying you know 250 dollars for the filling of a patient of mine so <laughs> fraud them like you know what i mean yeah it's weird and it, it i don't know that's a whole other conversation I that's mean, a dealing whole with dental other insur insurance yeah. right but i i mean it just it seems like a weird system I think we it just is a weird leave it at that. Right. Um, 
we talked about accountants, we talked about dental sales reps and stuff in terms of a team behind you. Okay. What other people should dental students, associates who are looking to buy a practice, who should they start recruiting? Right. So uh, lawyers, right off the bat, you need that corporate lawyer that we talked about, mm-hmm. right? You need employment lawyer. Um, if you buy an office, a lot of times these days they have um, employment contracts in place, like many offices do now. Your corporate lawyer could look at that, but if you want any modification to it or if you have any questions or anything like that, you should pass it on to an employment lawyer to look at that perspective purely from an employment perspective and, and address it before the closing after the closing, whenever you're an owner, you always need that employment lawyer on a speed dial, right? There's no issue that you think, oh, I know how to deal with this. No, every single, unfortunately, it's one of those things that you gotta, you gotta be able to you know, swallow the pill. So you need an employment lawyer, you need a corporate lawyer, you need uh, the banker that we talked about, you need insurance agents, two kinds. You need a personal, uh, I would say health insurance agent, like the disability, critical illness, life insurance, and you need a general insurance agent for your property insurance, fire insurance, equipment insurance, lease insurance, and all that stuff. And these are these are this. Then you need to deal with the company that you want to buy your your products from. So let's say you need one person, in my opinion, at the beginning, you don't really carry on with one company only. You need to have two or three, especially these days, because one company has this and the other one has this and the other one has this. You need to be able to shop around. So you need to have a relationship with two or three different sales reps of these companies, and you need to have a repair guy so or girl so that they can come in and you know, to repair your equipment. It usually is the company that sold you the equipment that you mm-hmm. buy it from. Then you need an IT team. Uh, you know, if it's, let's say you're dealing with Henry Schein and Dentrix, you know, they provide the support. Some companies you buy, you know, AbleDent. AbleDent is your IT people. Then your x-ray software has its own rep. So you need to know who you're dealing with. Like if you're with Kodak or if you're with uh, Plan Mecca, they have their own IT people. Then you need an IT person for your in, for your internal computer system. Usually if you're with Henry Schein, it's the same people, right? But sometimes it's not. Like we have an IT person. We have one count, uh, office is on Mac practice, which is a Mac-based software. That's an American one. So we have a Mac practice person in the US, we call them. And we have an IT guy now that comes in and looks after the computers. And we have one person for the x-ray. It's pretty complicated when you think about it, right? That sounds like a lot, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. And then if you own your own property, then you need to have somebody that can manage that property for you. So you need like a handyman type. You need to know. So, you know, there's a little bit of leak here. There's a little bit of a paint that needs here. Uh, Who's going to plow the uh, you know, back parking lot, who's going to, you know, shovel the front, uh, you need that. And then you need a marketing team. Uh, who's going to manage your, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram, website, blog, Twitter accounts, right? Yeah. Are you going to do it yourself or are you going to get somebody else to do that? And if somebody else is doing it, are they well versed into the RCDSO's requirements of what you can put on the website or not? That's yeah. a complicated topic itself. You cannot say you're the greatest dentist on earth 
in your website, you will get flagged from RCDSO right off the bat. So the person who is in charge of your the, the text of your website needs to know what the frick you're putting on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? They will, they usually the marketing people come in and treat it like any other business. We want to tell them how great you are as a dentist and dental office. This person has taken many, many courses. They are sitting on a hospital foundation board in my case. They were saying that. But apparently, according to RCSA, you can't say that stuff that is non-relevant to your clinical judgment. Why yeah. the patient needs to know that you're it's influencing people to come and see you because hospital is is a, you know, it's a it's a coveted position to be on, yeah. versus doctor so and so down the street that is not interested in doing any. Uh, why why people should think that your clinical skills are better than that person, right? Interesting. So, I didn't you need even think the, about need, that. Yes, you need you need that too. Like so, we we're getting into uh, quite a bit of a number of people that you need to cater to. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> that that seems like its own discussion. As it's well. it's <laughs> its own discussion. The team that you have to run it, and then and then at the same time, some offices now have coaching staff. They have yeah. a dental coach. They come in, talk to the staff, your relationship with them. We have a consultant firm in arm's length with the IPAC, which is the sterilization practices. We have auditors that come in and look at that. So, you know, what if there is a the the you know there's a breach? Who do you call first? Do you call the public health and say, hey, this happened, or do you call the IPAC consultant and say, hey, this equipment is not performing at this? What do we do now? Yeah. Right. It's yeah. it's very much more involved. When you're working with a DSO, you don't need any of that stuff. Yeah, you don't worry about it at all. So this is you see how it all it all circles back, right? Like yes. you're like people are excited about practice ownership. They're like, Yeah, I want to be oh. my own owner, I want to be my own boss, I want to make my own hours. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, Oh, you just listed off I don't even know like how many, like five, ten people that people ten get. minimum, ten people. Which yeah, has like nothing to, to do with the clinical stuff. Exactly. Like you have to establish such good relationships. And what, right. what's even more kind of worrisome about that all is it, it's so integral to your practice, right? So these, these can't be people you just meet off the street. Like you have to have a good relationship with them, right? And it can't so. be just, I just want to go work and do, I go to work and do an MOD. It, yeah, it no. doesn't work that way. Yeah. Honestly, Absolutely. the only time that you can say that if it's you're an associate or you work for a DSO that's, that's 100% involved. Right, there's some yeah, DSOs yeah. that just the financing it for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, if you're buying an if you are an established owner and you have all these relationships, you have the property management, you have this, you have that, right? Why would you? So they're they're very hands off. They don't want to change necessarily your marketing team if you don't want to, and yeah. they don't necessarily suggest you you know switch softwares if you don't want it to, right? So they don't care. But as a first time buyer, you coming in. You're walking into a practice that has all of that. So your DSO is your backbone that you're going to rely on. Exactly. You don't need yeah. to worry about what is going to go on a website because there already is a website. Right? Exactly. The exactly. employment contracts are all in place. Um, there's been somebody there fixing the equipment all along. So you could technically just go and do your MODs, but you still need your accountant. You still need your corporate lawyer. Yeah. And you still need your insurance person for your disability, life insurance, and your critical illness insurance. These are critical because you will lose your livelihood if you do not have proper personal yeah. insurance. Right? That's a completely different topic. If I tell you how much uh, premium I pay for my health insurance policies, 
you're just going to flip. But that's 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 the reality of being able to protect your likelihood livelihood by having a disability insurance and critical insurance, critical illness insurance, and the life insurance is not just for the you know your 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 dependents. It's for the loans. If you want to get a $1 million loan, you need to have a $1 million policy assigned to the bank so that they cover their money if anything happens to you and yeah. you die. Yeah. So you cannot avoid You cannot avoid it. You can't avoid having these insurances. For sure. For Non-negotiable. Sure. This is cost of doing business. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Well, not, honestly, well, go ahead, Bob. Go ahead. Yeah, if I could say one thing. This has been a great conversation. You guys are really changing my mind on the, on the DSO <laughs> model. Um, it, it's... It's it weird, so right? convenient. Like, it, I, and I, I tell honestly, you, I have to tell you this, Bob, and for the listeners, like I have no affiliation with any of them. Mm-hmm. I have been reproached with all, by all of them, as you can imagine. I have personal friends in some of them that, you know, my, my old banker at Royal Bank works for one. A personal friend of mine is a co-CEO of one um, that I've gone to, you know, the, the, the meetings that have been celebrated. I've been pitched by all the three of them or the main ones. <laughs> And I've been approached by the ones who want to start it up. So the model works. Yeah. Like I, I want to say that the reason that I have not joined is simply because the support that they offered, it took me my blood and sweat and heart and soul to be able to provide that support for myself. So at this point, you know, there's yeah. really no reason for me to do that. But having started, if I was coming out today, I would have absolutely joined a DSO. Yeah. Like I would have absolutely. And if I want to sell my offices one day, I will flip it into a DSO with no question. <laughs> I will not sell it to an individual or buyer because I tell you, not a lot of people would have the, the stupidity that I have to try to run something like this. Yeah. You know, it, I, I don't recommend it for anybody because I tell you, Friday morning when you called me, I can tell you what my morning started. At 5.30, I had supplies in my car. I went into the first office, dropped it off, took the case for the lab from this first office to the second office where I showed you the lab drop it off for the lab technician, went back to the first office, waiting for the garbage man to pick up the garbage. So I pull in the garbage <laughs> bins because over the weekend, people dumped their garbage in our bins. So I was waiting oh, no. for that when you were calling me and I telling you, I was waiting for the garbage truck to come to do this, checking the temperatures, making sure all the equipments are turned off for the weekend. You know, the pipes don't freeze. Sometimes, you know, the HVAC doesn't work. So this is as an owner, this is your thing. Did they plow the driveway this morning or not? And then flying all the way to the top to Huntsville, because one of the HVACs were not working, opening the door for the HVAC guy to go and check it, coming back and accepting the compressor for the PPE uh, business. (laughs) So, you know, you must be mad to do this. Well, some people if you like have it. As, yeah, some people like it. Like, you know, it's a Do you disease. like it? <laughs> it's a but at the same time, I have 100% control over things. Exactly. exactly. I can say, you know, I was sitting at home in, in, in April. And I said to my wife that I want to have a PPE company. Yeah. And I did a lot of this on the backbone of this dental offices. Like I used yeah. the printing. I used the, the space. If I was part of a DSO, you know, I couldn't have used the internal printing, pure later account, you know, the tape, all that stuff on the backbone of another business if I didn't own both of them. The truck that is hauling the, the PPE supplies now is a company truck. It's a, you know, under the holding company that owns the buildings. So if I didn't have any of this stuff, I didn't have the flexibility to have a truck to pull this, 
right? So what I'm saying is that you got to consider the positive and negative. But at the same time, you know, that truck has costs associated with it and you got to write this off and that and it's a headache, you know? Yeah. What I'm saying is you got to know what you want to do. Yeah. Right? And you got to sure. know what you're getting yourself into. For sure. Right? I think I think a lot of people and myself included, you know, their perception of practice ownership changes really quickly when they start learning about practice ownership, right? Because it starts getting away from this model of like, okay, I'm going to be a clinical dentist and on the side, I'll be a practice owner. It's like, no, 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 no. You're going to be a practice owner and on the side, you're going to be a clinical dentist. You are right on guys. Like this is absolutely it. You are yeah. a dentist by an extension. Exactly. Yeah. You're an employer. You are a business owner in the community. You could be your own landlord if you own your own building. You're a tenant before any of that stuff, right? You are an insurance client. You are a client of a lawyer. You're a client of an accountant. You're a taxpayer to the government, not just a personal taxes. You 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 are a gatekeeper for your employees' CPP benefit, making sure they are their CPP payments are paid properly. You get access to know the you know you know what their income is, so that how much CPP you're going to contribute on on their behalf. Then you're a dentist. That's it. Yeah. At the end, of, uh, at, a long at the list. end of it, <laughs> the end of a long list. Yeah, yeah. And it's then you got to you got to be a dentist that is, has you know you to do your clinical work to the best of your abilities and your your judgments. And that, a lot of times, the pressures of all the other stuff that I told you, gets you to sit in the chair, um, looking at the tooth and say, "Why am I doing this this way?" Yeah. It took me, you know, from six o'clock to nine o'clock to prepare myself so that at nine o'clock I do a filling. Yeah. Right. But my associates yeah. roll in at 10 to nine to do that. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. So it's a trade off. I mean, it, it has to really depend on what you want yeah. to do. Right. So just yeah. be honest to yourself. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So let's wrap things up. Let's wrap because sure. we're, we're about an hour in. Um, let's leave it off on, on this. What what is the one tip you would give students right now? Get to know yourself. Be honest with yourself. Do not do things because other people are doing it. Do not be afraid to go against the current. If everybody comes out and wants to do, join a DSO or work for somebody else, if you wanted to buy your first office the first day that you come out, do it. If you have the means to do it and if you have the financing ability to do that, and if the bank was is going to you know cover the rest of it or if you have family members that have money that they can give it to you, do it. Don't be afraid to do something against what other people are doing. If you never want to buy an office, never buy an office. If you want to stay an associate for the rest of your life, clinical life, stay associate for the rest of your clinical life. If you want to go back to school and switch after two years, you realize, you know, dentistry is not for me. I don't want to do dentistry anymore. Go back and do something else. You want to, you can, you can turn Within, I tell you this, your loans that you're owing to the bank for your for student loans, you will pay it back in three to four years. After paying it back to three to four years, what are you going to do then? Can't you just take another loan and go become something else? You can, yeah. right? So if I have one uh, advice is to know yourself the sooner and earlier in your life that you know what you are good at and what you're not good at, it saves you thousands of thousands of hours of agony and pain and money 
to correct that and fix that and try to fit in with the idea. There's no one way of doing things. Not every dentist needs to own an office. Not every dentist should own an office and not every dentist should stay an associate and be an associate. If you are an associate and you're miserable and you want to own an office, there is no way that you can't find one. There's no way for you not to be able to start up your own. You just have to be able to accept paying the price for it, both emotionally through um, grit and through some financial hardship. But there's no way for you not to be able to do that. If you like to live in the mountains in BC, there's no way for you not to do that. If you want to practice dentistry by a beach somewhere in Caribbean, you can with your license. If you wanted to go and live on the, you know, uh, coast in somewhere in Australia, your your license allows you to do that. If you want to become yeah. a part-time surfer while you're doing that, you can. The <laughs> sooner you know that, the sooner you can find a way to do it. Yeah. yeah. It all starts with you as an individual. There's there no one go. size fit all. I tell you yeah, that. That's, there's the hook. It all starts with you. Exactly. <laughs> Know what you want to do and do it. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest reasons why we actually started this organization in the first place was to get like the self-learning process and um, just all these resources and recognize them at an early stage and figure out that process when you're a first year or a second year versus when you're one or two years out. And it's crazy. You guys guys are probably, with my estimation, with my humble opinion, if you think that I kind of learned one or two things in the past 10 years in this business, you guys are about 15 years ahead in terms of your knowledge and understanding of what this business is than people who are not having this conversation today. You're oh, that's fantastic. 15 years <laughs> ahead. There, you probably know more about what dentistry is about in the second year of dentistry than a couple of your colleagues who've graduated up to about five years ago. Well, you do. I tell you, and I, I'm not saying it lightly to make you feel better about yourself. You should feel better about yourself. But this is what I told your colleague the first time he called me. I said, you know what? I would have died if I had this opportunity to talk about this in the second year, third year of dental school, because that's when this conversation needs to happen. Because it's exciting. we have, mm-hmm. I tell you this, there's too many unhappy colleagues of ours working in the wrong environment. They are associate, they're unhappy, they don't know what to do. There are owners who are unhappy, they don't know what to do. And the life has, pro- you know, they have just rolled with the punches. Their, their, their family members influenced them. The banks, the accountants, the, the, the lawyers, they kind of nudged them in this certain environment. The expectations of them nudged them in this environment. They're in it 10, 15 years later, and they realize this wasn't for me. That brings a lot of uh, resentment. That brings a lot of agony. That brings a lot of anxiety. That brings a lot of sleepless night. You know, having debt is not for everybody. Like if you look at me that I'm rolling with punches and I have debt as much as they were willing to give it to me. If they call me and say, Roshani, we'll give you another $50 million debt today on your personal account. Would you take it to do something with it? I would do it. Yeah, it absolutely. does not <laughs> bother me because I, I look at things from a different perspective. Yeah. But I know people that they don't want to owe $5. 
Yeah. Imagine if you go get a loan for $2 million on an expensive practice and you happen not to make money for three, four months and you have to shut it down. You know, the amount of agony and stress that is going to bring to your life, is it worth it just so that you can say, I own this entity that is here in the strip mall? Yeah. Is it really worth it or not? But I tell you, there's a lot of our colleagues out there who are going through that right now. Mm-hmm. You guys won't. You have the knowledge that many of us didn't have and still don't have 10, 15, five years out. And we leave that decision to luck and the circumstances. Some yeah. of us are lucky. Things line up for us and many of us are not lucky and things don't line up for us and we internalize it. Right? I tell you this, and this is completely you know, not really relevant to what we're talking about. There's one thing I learned. If you tell me today, what did you learn in your MBA? What one-liner did you have that you can remember, close your eyes and say, what did you learn when you spent 11 months of your time in Rodman School of Management? When there's a monkey on your back, you take it off your back and put it on someone else's back. If it's your problem, <laughs> Your number one job, instead of solving it, is to find someone else who can solve it. That's your job as a manager. <laughs> That's a good way That's of looking at it. That's one thing I learned. Right. <laughs> That's, I learned in the first class of strategy. The professor said, this is if you want to learn one thing from my class is that. You, come up, you have a problem. As a manager, your job is to find the person who's going to solve that problem. Yeah. Your job is not to solve it yourself as a manager. And a lot of times in dental office, is the same thing. We traditionally need to be able to solve all the problems. We we have done it. It's yeah. expectation from us. But when you're managing a team, a, a, a team of your staff, a team including your patients, and a team including all those people that I said are behind you, your job is not to solve it. Your job is to find the right person who can solve your problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, so there you go. You know, we could go on and on and on. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Well, th- this is the it's the reoccurring theme, right? Dentistry it's so much more complicated than oh, yes. you you think, right? And I, it's cool. It's an interesting profession. Anyways, um, well, this has been filling the gaps on practice ownership. So I think we filled in some you know pretty gaping gaps <laughs> in terms of uh, what we need right. to talk about. Bob, thanks for helping me co-host today. Not a problem. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely, Bob. Dr. I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much for coming and talk to us. It was a good talk. Um, you know, I, I hope that in the future we can keep having these talks. So Absolutely. Anytime you want to have a chat, I'm more than happy to come back. You guys are an intelligent group of uh, young colleagues of mine that are going to come out. And I tell you, uh, you know more than a lot of our colleagues who are actually practicing and owning offices today. So it's very encouraging to see that. I, I tell you, it warms up my heart. That's thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. And we're, we're honestly, we wanted to do this because it seems like you talk to anyone who's in dental school, right? And the same questions pop up, you know, they're, the same interests pop up. You're like, okay, well, you know, practice loans, how does that work? You know what I mean? No one knows. We don't know. And that's why we wanted to do something like this. So we wanted to create platforms where we can get into these kind of topics and hopefully kind of get the word out there. So 